0: We are at the very end of our study of the Gospel of John, just two more weeks. We come again to the last chapter. I'd like to go over the the passage that we read last week, not including it with the stuff that was before, but uh, taking it now as an anticipation of future service and ministry as the Lord has Peter look forward in John chapter 21. Peter has fallen short and denied his Lord, and the Lord is here restoring him, but more than restoring him, is commissioning him for a life of service and the basis for that life here is given as we turn to John chapter 21. Let's read together in verse 15 down to verse 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Father in heaven, you do know all things. You know that we love you, love the Lord Jesus, love that the Holy Spirit has given to us that he might bear that fruit in all the children of God of love. And yet you know how very weakly and poorly that love animates us and is reflected in our thoughts and in our hearts. We therefore pray that as we give attention to love and the power of love and the needfulness of it, we pray that you would stir us up again, that we who have neglected it or even forgotten our first love might have it restored. We come again to the author and source of love that we might make our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Francis Schaefer was one of the most insightful and, I think, uh, helpful, thoughtful, certainly Christians of the 20th century. His parents were not Christians. He was converted in his high school years and. Uh, out of an agnostic background, I just found out yesterday that he graduated from our own nearby Hampton Sydney College with highest honors. And in 1935, it was right at that time that the Northern Presbyterian Church, you might know, was dividing into uh, liberal and conservative branches. And uh, Schaefer aligned himself with the conservatives who were standing for a, a fully biblical and historical. Christianity, and in that church he pastored for 10 years here in America. But after the Second World War, Francis and his very gifted wife Edith went to Europe as evangelists, they were called, but actually missionaries. It was uh, um, to be in Switzerland that that they would land and and have the rest of their uh, life, for the most part, spent in, in ministry there. But it was shortly after Francis Schaeffer arrived in Switzerland that he went through the great crisis of his life. The year was 1951, and and, and doubts were beginning to arise in his mind. And as Schaeffer put it, the, the problem that he felt was a lack of reality, Uh, Not just in him, Um, among many of the Christians with whom he had lived and, and studied and worked in the evangelical movement in America, as it was then being called, he detected a lack of reality, he said. Among those even who had stood most staunchly for the Christian Orthodox faith, he did not see those things that ought to characterize a Christian or to come from a Christian faith. And among all those various things, it was love, especially, that he noticed was lacking. And it wasn't only lacking in others, although that is what first drew his attention. Schaeffer became aware on reflection that there was definitely not the same love in him, there was not the same zeal and devotion and fire in himself that he once had. There was a lack of reality in him. And so as a, as a missionary, newly arrived in Europe, he, he felt that he had no choice but to pause and to rethink his entire position. To go back to the very beginning and to start all over. And to find out if what he believed was actually true. Was it true? Had he been a fool? Was there nothing real about Christianity to be found? Edith, his wife, describes those several months in her book called The Tapestry Days of Great Anxiety and fear for her. Edith was a convinced Christian from a long line of Christians, and she was greatly worried whether her husband would still be a Christian when he had finished thinking through his faith as it went on from weeks to months. Francis describes his experience in his own words in his preface to his book, True Spirituality. He writes, we were living in Champarey at the time, and I told Edith that for the sake of honesty, I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism and think through the whole matter. I'm sure this was a difficult time for her, and I'm sure that she prayed much for me in those days. I walked in the mountains when it was clear, and when it was rainy, I walked backward and forward in the hayloft of the old chalet in which we lived. I walked, prayed, and thought through what the Scriptures taught as well as reviewing my own reasons for being a Christian. And as I rethought my Christians, excuse me, my reasons for being a Christian, I saw again that there were totally sufficient reasons to know that the infinite personal God does exist and that Christianity is true. And in going further, I saw something else which made a profound difference in my life. I searched through what the Bible said concerning reality as a Christian. Gradually, I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received after I was a Christian, I had heard little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Christ for our present lives. Gradually the sun came out and the song came. Interestingly enough, although I had written no poetry for many years, it was in that time of joy and song I found poetry beginning to flow again. Poetry of certainty and affirmation of life, thanksgiving, and praise, admittedly, as poetry, it's very poor, but it expressed a song in my heart which was wonderful for me. Now, I I can't, of course, read you his whole book, True Spirituality. He, He goes on and unpacks then in that book what he means by this finished work of Christ for our present lives and a present Christ and all that. But what Schaeffer had rediscovered, the point is, was the personal element in Christianity. The presence of Christ now with his people and their love for him and their confidence in him, without which there will always be an aching lack of reality in our lives, as he calls it. And the rediscovery of a personal, real Christianity, not just reasoned, of which he was a master, but real, became the basis of his ministry at Brie, with which the Lord um, made incredible use as a powerful and effective uh, tool in, in commending Christianity to a modern culture which had largely written off the church, especially in Europe Christ's finished work, especially that Christ had taken away our sins and what that meant and why we could rest in that, that taught Schaefer the the reality that who's been forgiven much also loves much, and he became able to serve others with a song in his heart. Now, this is a, a modern retelling of a lesson that Peter had to learn in his own way, as we've been studying, Peter also lacked a certain reality to him. You remember, he was ready to fight. He was certain and confident and boasting that even if all fell away, he would never fall away, that he was ready to go to death with Jesus. He had a very proud edge to him. But denying the Lord three times had given him a dose of reality that humbled his pride and showed him that really he had nothing to boast about but was saved purely by grace through Christ's finished work that he, like everyone else, needed Jesus' grace. And here in the passage before us, the Lord draws forth from Peter a threefold declaration of love to match his threefold denial of Jesus. And he who was forgiven much does love much. Last time we looked at the same passage with respect to Peter's past and how the Lord was restoring him and how in Christ failure is not final. It may be very great indeed, but in Christ failure is not final. Now today, we're going to look the other direction. We're going to look at this with respect to Peter's future. That if he does, in fact, love the Lord, then out of this love he should labor for the Lord, feeding Christ's sheep. Though, as we'll see next time, Jesus immediately goes on to say, it will end in a very painful death. So today we consider the practical importance of love for Christ in the Christian life And how important it is that we serve him out of this love. Let's begin with the need for love. The need for love. Do you love me? Jesus asked. Do you love me? Do you love me? It might seem at first sight to be a simple question. And in one sense it is. Because every child can understand the question and even give an answer. But of course, it's a very far-reaching question, as he teaches us that love is to be the foundation of all things in the Christian life. Or the Bible says that we are to be rooted and grounded in love, that love is the way on which we are to walk, as we are told to walk in love, that love is that which must bind our hearts together, even as we just prayed that they be knit together in love. That love is the safety and protection of our lives and our spiritual warfare. For we are taught to put on the breastplate of love. And it says that even if we give everything that we have to the poor, even if we were to give our body to the flames of martyrdom, but without love, we are nothing. Our first priority must be to love the Lord our God totally and unreservedly with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. This is the great thing that is needful. And John's gospel has majored on love. It has shown us a distinctively Christian love, a love that is the overflow of this wonderful, astonishing experience of God's love to us in Christ, a love that is taught to us by the Spirit, so that we actually are sharing in the divine love, loving him because he first loved us. And Jesus has revealed to us the love of God in such a way. I mean, we don't need to have Jesus to know that God is a giving and loving God, but what depths of love and giving are shown to us in this gospel? The the love of God, whom to know him is to love him. And this is the deeply personal and emotional and moral vision that lies at the very center of the Christian life. And here is one further encouragement to draw out your heart and love to Jesus. He desires it from you. He says in this gospel, abide in my love, that that nothing would please him more than to have your love. No ancient or modern philosopher wrote one. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Russell ever taught such far-reaching ideas about love. No political f- figure from Julius Caesar to Winston Churchill has made such demands on his followers to love. No religious teacher, whether Buddha, Confucius, or Muhammad, ever commanded his followers to love one another as he loved them and gave his life for them. No other system of theology expresses love to the degree of Christ's death on the cross, or makes demands of love, like the teaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles. This love, which when we recognize what it's talking about is the, the full devotion of mind and will and heart, embracing motives and attitudes as well as affections. To be sure, no one can expect the full flood of passion all the time, but whether we enjoy a flood of passion or not, love for Christ is where we expect to derive our true happiness, all our holiness, and all of our real fruitfulness as Christian people. Anything that counts. Without this, it's nothing. Here is the need for love, my first point, which is mostly by way of review. But I wanted to set it together, all together before you again the need for love. But let's consider now the connection that Jesus is making here between loving him and serving him. My second point, the power of love. Do, do you love me? He asked Peter. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. A carpenter or plumber can do good work without love. Love. But God's work can never be done without love for Christ. But positively speaking, this love is what brings joy, creativity, freshness, spontaneity, energy, and life to all that we do. Without it, serving the Lord becomes mundane, mechanical, routine, if not actual drudgery. Or in extreme cases, uh, a cold legalism evidenced by the Pharisees. Or as, or as Schaefer put it succinctly, as he, as he looked around at the church, as he looked inside, the, without this, our Christian lives lack reality. Where is, where is the real thing? What a man thinks to do? What a what woman plans to do? is not to be compared with what he or she actually does when there is a great love within. It says that uh, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him only a few days. Remember why? Because of the love that he had for her. Little is done for his cause on earth merely from a sense of duty or from knowing what is right. Those things are very important but the Bible says that whatever is done without love is is worthless. That even though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing, and so forth. It's it's very important to recognize the profound difference in kind between loving obedience and obedience out of fear or worse motivations. Jesus has called for a kind of obedience to his commands that rests on Christ's love, His finished work, His presence with His people. This reminds me of the Lord's words to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where He he says to the church, I know your works, your labor, your patience or endurance, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They they were doing so well in many ways. Like, I think, the frankly more fundamentalist church where Francis Schaeffer had his first Steps, as a, as a young Christian, working hard for the Lord, holding the sound doctrine, putting false teachers out of the church. It must be done. Persevering and enduring hardship for Jesus' sake. But the Lord noticed that there was an irreality about that church. I made that word up, irreality. He said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. This is the spirit that you need more than, more than anything else. And, brothers and sisters, you need it, I need it. The church will regain her old strength and heroism the moment she regains a passion of love for Jesus Christ. She will once again have the power to conquer the world when the love of Christ constrains her, as the Bible says. It was love that motivated Martin Lloyd-Jones to leave his prestigious medical career to become a preacher of God's Word. It says in his biography, quote, he came to see the love of God expressed in the death of Christ in a way which overwhelmed him. And not only him, but his hearers as well. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, said that you know if money could motivate the merchants of England to cross life-threatening oceans and enter the interior of China at great personal risk of loss of life, Couldn't the love of Christ motivate missionaries to do the same for the sake of the gospel? Well, that's what moved him anyway. William Williams, that mighty preacher of the Welsh Great Awakening, wrote that love is the greatest thing in religion, and that if it is forgotten, nothing can take its place. brother-in-law Nathan has preached here. He he said before that in his pastoral counseling, married couples will sometimes come to him with ongoing issues that they want help with, and they're arguing about this, and they're wanting that, and and there are just repeated slights and failures. And sometimes, you know, after working with them for months and the practical problems, the, the real problem becomes clear. He says, there's just a lack of love And no amount of counseling and technique and program and accountability and theory can ever overcome a lack of love. And that is certainly true in the Christian life, that all the programs and practices in the world cannot overcome a lack of love. And even the holiness it produces is a very cold and brittle holiness. And Martha-like, we can become more preoccupied with doing things for the Lord than enjoying being with him. And Mary knew when to set other things aside and to spend time with Jesus, which she calls the one thing necessary and the better part. So this is a great challenge for us here, brothers and sisters, a reminder of how much love must be the central, energizing, operating principle of our daily lives, supremely love for Jesus Christ himself. We are to think and speak and act out of that love as all of an expression of what we have for Jesus. And if we have it, that love will be an unstoppable power in our lives. And if we don't, there's nothing that will ever be able to make up for it. Point two, the power of love. Well, Point three, then, the renewing of love, the renewing of love. It's necessary, it's powerful, but, well, as Peter experiences here, it must be renewed from time to time, because without ever realizing it, true Christians can slip into a way of thinking and living that, in effect, reduces Christianity to a lifestyle, to a particular code of conduct, maybe a set of beliefs and rules for living. No real Christian would ever admit to doing such thing, of course, not on purpose. No one expects it to happen, but it can happen. It does happen without even our knowing it. As Peter found out, the devil is always at work tempting us to live as everyone else in the world lives. Relying on our own strength, on our own wits maybe even boasting in ourselves while we forget a present Christ and all that He's done. And then everything that's unique about Christianity, everything glorious about it is thus lost and becomes, just like every other religion and philosophy, a matter of pure human effort and calculation. And among all the devil's schemes, this is among his deadliest and most subtle, probably one of his deadliest because it is among his most subtle, to have us live in the power of conduct and ritual and creed without the living relationship of love with a present Christ who's loved us and given himself for us. It's interesting that in the church at Ephesus... That that church was not deceived by false teachers. But they were deceived by a lack of love within. Waning love is one of those things that is often hard to put your finger on until it's too late. This is the subtlety of the devil's temptation. The world also is against us, no doubt, the church being very deeply influenced by the world. Dick Halverson was the chaplain to the U.S. Senate a few years back. He, he said that, quote, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer Realized that for, for all of its busyness and orthodoxy, there was a profound problem in the church. <coughs> even in its best expression, he saw a lack of reality, as he saw in his own heart as well. And, and Schaeffer found out over those course of months and then even the years to follow, it's not that easy to restore a heart that's deficient in love. A cold heart becomes a hard heart. And hard hearts are very resistant to change. But, but Schaeffer at least recognized the problem, which was a critical first step. And even if he had to go all the way back to begin, at the, even if he had to go back to his agnosticism and work Every step forward to work it out over months, he eventually did embrace this wonderful truth that there is every reason to love a present Christ who has loved me and given himself for me. He he could not see that before, but there is every reason to do so. And, brothers and sisters, rather than letting our love unconsciously slip away, going gentle into that good night. Recognizing the profound danger and darkness of death that results, we must also recognize our need for constantly keeping a sense of God's great love for us on our souls and applying to our own hearts Christ's death for our salvation and forgiveness of sins and the present power of the uh, fellowship of the Holy Spirit who is able to lead us in our daily walk and to bear the fruit of love in our lives and the daily remembering of all the Lord's promises to us and the great privilege. It is just to know the one who made us and all these things. And all that we have read in the Gospel of John, the, the, the great love that God has had for us has manifest in Christ, this whole book tells us what motives, what strong inducement you and I have every day to have a mighty love for Jesus. That is what we need going forward. So I think it's very interesting that, that John ends his book here, not just, I think, telling us about how Peter was now to go on and serve, but looking forward for us all that this is what this is something that places you and me above the angels. Do You ever think about this? That they will never know the love that we know for Jesus Christ because Jesus never died for them, as we just read. He never rescued them from sin and death. He never loved them in defiance of their unworthiness. He never remained faithful to them in the teeth of all their unfaithfulness to him. But we have reason to love him indeed, and in this love and in this passion, this drive to draw near as near as we possibly can to the Son of God and to hide ourselves in Him in face of manifold dangers all around, it is our ultimate joy and privilege, and it is the greatest sin of our lives that we don't have it. Oh, that things were just a little better. But be cheered by this happy thought, that when you have loved the Lord Jesus as much as it is possible for a human being to love Him, you will not have begun to love him as he deserves to be loved or to delight in him as much as it is possible to delight in him because there is that life to come. And there, at last, at last, there will be much, much, much more love. Maybe you know that sermon of Edwards, heaven, a world of love. What will it mean we could scarcely, we could scarcely begin to consider. We know, we, we, we know just a few of those great times or maybe even moments in which just love captivates us and brightens us and warms us and causes us to overflow and, 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 and this from fallen hearts, right? What will it be like to at last be able to obey that great command as we ought all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our it, all our mind it, it will it, it will be something delightful indeed, so much more than we have ever known, so very, very much more, so that we will think that we were barely alive here. and I tell you this that we must nevertheless now pray for this love of Jesus to be in our hearts, to summon up with remembrance and argument all the reasons for it, to fix our heart and minds on Jesus, whom to know is to love, by which you will be empowered in your darkest and most arid points in your journey. If you lack it, if you feel, oh Lord, I have so little, you can at least present to the Lord today a heart that mourns for a lack of love. Lord, I wish I could present you a heart full of love, but I'm going to have to give you the next best thing, a heart that thirsts for it, that longs for it, that wants to be filled with it. This is a precious and acceptable sacrifice. And such a longing with prayer is soon to be answered but must be answered necessarily over the course of a life. We all need to remember that first love, to have that joy and zeal and to do the things that we did at first and to build upon them. We often find that it's easier to act our way into a feeling than feel our way into an action, right? So so Jesus did say to that church at Ephesus, not only have you lost your first love, you need to remember and repent and do the first works. Do those things you did at first. Have those longings for love then matched by deeds of love, that devoting yourself to the things that are good, and like the early church, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers and meeting from house to house and doing good for the name of Jesus, just for the pure joy of it. But in any case, to move forward, Peter congregation, you must go back to the beginning and summon yourselves back to loving Jesus himself, walking in that love, increasing in that love, making it more and more and more the very core principle of everything in your daily lives. And then you can feed the sheep, you can tend the lambs, you can be useful to others in the flock of God if that is in you. That, that is what Francis Schaeffer experienced. His own renewal was then followed by a mighty power to raise up uh, Christians in a dying Europe spiritually and to draw many others to Christ, and in a remarkable way. Though a lack of reality had caused Schaeffer to question everything and turn inward, finding reality gave him an answer and made him able to feed many lambs. For love has the power to make real and beautiful and powerful all these claims of a Christ now unseen. I came across a story of a man who was uh, starting at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis a few years ago. Um... A a man uh, who who met him uh, inquired as to his spiritual pilgrimage. Uh, He he had uh, been been raised Catholic. He had lost all faith. He had gone to Paris to study with Jean-Paul Sartre and the other existentialists, hoping to find some meaning in life. But uh, I pick up reading here. His studies and contacts in Paris had only driven him deep into despair, through a casual but obviously providential encounter with a stranger in Paris to whom he confessed his deep despair. He was advised to go to a little mountain village in Switzerland where he'd come in contact with a man who could certainly answer his questions and provide him with meaning for life. He soon found himself at Le Brie, listening intently to Francis Schaeffer, asking questions and raising objections frequently to what he heard. I asked then how he was brought to personal faith in Christ, he answered. It was not by the strength of the intellectual arguments which I heard, he answered. I think it's interesting because Francis had an unusually strong mind, right? That's how many, many, many other people came. But he says, it was not by the strength of the intellectual arguments by which I heard, he answered. "I, I still had questions, plenty of them. But it was the love of this man Dr. Francis Schaeffer, that touched my heart and made me see the reality, the reality of the living Savior he talked about, his words. He would spend hours with me, and he never seemed to grow weary of my almost endless questions. I couldn't resist the love of Christ, which I experienced in this man. Schaeffer himself wrote, if we are surrounded by a world that no longer believes in, tr- in the concept of truth, certainly we can't expect people to have any interest in whether a man's doctrine is correct or not. But Jesus did give the mark that will arrest the attention of the world. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, well, this is what we need. I'll conclude with uh, a kind of prayer to love from Nathaniel Vincent in, in English Puritan so many years ago in his discourse concerning love. Oh, love, how much want is there of you in the church of, of Christ? And how much does the church feel for this want? It groans. It languishes. It dies daily because of your absence. Return, O oh love. Return. Repra- repair breaches. Restore paths to live in. Edify the old ways and places and raise up the foundations. Of many generations. Now, if God is love, we say to that, "Amen." Let us pray. Oh God, we do often remind ourselves of the great distance that there is between the high and beautiful and lofty commands that we are given in our daily existence, in which we are able barely to see that glorious light shining from above, such a difference between the gospel treasure that we carry and the earthen vessel that carries it. We know, O Lord, that no man in his strength is in any way sufficient for these things. But have you not, O Lord, given that spirit to us, your children, that we in love might cry, Abba, Father? And does he not promise in the Word that He inspired to bear that fruit of love in us. We ask You, O God, for Your encouragement and reassurance that all that we read and desire is real and is needful and is available. And so, our Father, we come again to this Word of Yours and pray that when the Lord asks, do you love me, that we would with all the more full and final hearts declare, yes, Lord. And you know all things, and you know that we do love you. Oh, we, How we wish it was yet more as it will be. How, how much we wish that we were in the, the full bloom of it as we sometimes are. But Lord, do not leave us nor forsake us. Please do not leave us merely a set of principles and and practices that may indeed suit our carnal reasoning and puff us up with pride against others. But, O Lord, lead us into all the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus, the love of Jesus in which we might find.